Welcome to the podcast for Hurston on Tennessee Family Law. I'm K.O. Hurston, a family law attorney in Knoxville and the author of Hurston on Tennessee Family Law. I want to start by saying how pleased I am with all the positive feedback I received about Terry's story. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Go back and listen to episodes one and two of this podcast to hear Terry, a former client of mine, talk about her life before, during, and after her divorce. It's an interesting story, and I think there are lessons to be learned from her experience. In this episode and the next one, I sit down with Judge Bill Swan to look back on his 32 years presiding over the family law court in Knoxville. Let's start with a little bio. After finishing high school in Knoxville, Bill Swan went off to Harvard, where he studied German. After graduating from Harvard, he spent a year in Austria as a Fulbright scholar before going on to Yale, where he completed his Ph.D. in Germanic languages and literature. After Yale, he worked as an assistant professor at Brown University for a few years before leaving for law school at the University of Tennessee. He graduated from UT Law in 1975 and began private practice in Knoxville. So, before he was Judge Swan, he was Dr. Swan, and then Professor Swan, and then Lawyer Swan. In 1982, at the age of 39, he was elected Judge of the Fourth Circuit Court in Knoxville. Hmm, let's see. Where was I in 1982? What year did you take the bench? 82. I was 10 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that's right. While he was presiding over trials and ruling on bitter family law disputes, I was busy honing my skills as a little league pitcher. But I eventually found my way to his courtroom when I started practicing law some 20 years ago. He remained the judge of the only dedicated family law court in Knoxville until he retired in 2014. That's 32 years on the bench. The great thing, Kelly, about being on the bench is that you can do what you believe is right. You have the power to make the case come out the right way. When you're a lawyer, all you can do is ask for that and litigate for that and hope to achieve it. In this first episode, I asked Judge Swan about some of the ways the practice of family law has changed during his tenure on the bench. Has the way lawyers treat each other gotten better or worse? How has the presence of more female attorneys changed things? What's behind the increase in pro se litigants in family law cases, and what can be done to help them do a better job representing themselves? Is it better to have an attorney as a mediator in family law cases as opposed to a non-attorney mediator? How can family law attorneys be more effective advocates in court? For Judge Swan's thoughts on these questions, keep listening. We start with his observations about the ways the practice of family law can vary depending on where you are in the state. When a lawyer looks at the landscape in a courthouse, um, he believes that it has always been thus and always will be thus. Uh, (laughs) And that's kind of nice. That leads to uh, great differences in judicial culture from courthouse to courthouse. And one of the thrills of being A judge is being an interchange judge in a different court because it's completely different. The clerks behave differently, they think differently, they have different customs, and it's it's just a delight. What does that mean for justice? It means it's highly localized. 
justice is what happens at the court where you happen to be litigating. And it could be a completely different, procedurally completely different kind of justice than what you would uh, achieve 30 miles away. In 32 years on the bench, you've had a lot of opportunity to interact with family law attorneys and, uh, and observe how they treat one another in court and out. Have you witnessed a change in the way family law attorneys act toward one another in those 32 years? I'm sure that I have, but my perspective is so limited. You, you must bear in mind that a judge is a, is a bird in a very tightly guarded cage and has a very limited view of, of the world, a very limited view of the practitioners before him, and unless he sees it happen in court or it is complained about in discovery, you don't know how well or how shabbily the lawyers are treating each other. In 1982, I don't know if the lawyers acted the way they do now, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Did they? Or, or I had this image in my mind that it was a more genteel time and uh, a little more uh, civility. You're absolutely correct. It was uh, a more easygoing time. There was less pressure from the docket lawyers took more time with their cases, and they were, frankly, uh, less prepared than they had to be uh, during the last 24 years of my tenure because I ran a, uh, a rapidly sailing ship. I mean, there were deadlines by which you did this and deadlines by which you did that, and uh, that inadvertently uh, perhaps worsened the atmosphere within the courtroom because people were under pressure. There always was one lawyer who was rude to other lawyers, and his approach was not to proceed on the merits of the case, but to attack adversary counsel, which I viewed as tacky and ineffective uh, and inevitable with this lawyer. And I believe uh, my colleagues practicing before the bench knew that it was coming, and uh, just sloughed it off, even joked about it, the obligatory ad hominem attack. Do you think that was done to put on a show for the client, so the client thinks, I've got a lawyer who's fighting? Yes. Uh, or do you think there was an actual sort of strategic point to it? Yes. Uh, if you can intimidate your adversary, uh, this lawyer's point of view would be, do it. Uh, also show off for your client, and of course it covers up a multitude of uh, uh, unpreparedness. <laughs> if you really don't know the merits of your case, attack your adversary counsel and fuzz it over. And this happened. This happened. But isn't that a really ineffective way to, to do things when your audience, your audience of one, the sole decision maker in that courtroom, uh, is unfazed by that stuff. I don't know that I've seen a judge that that, that works on. Yes, uh, and uh, this lawyer became uh, uh, very frustrated because uh, that didn't work with me, and the uh, the adjudication would be fact-driven, and uh, if he didn't have the facts, of course, he did not prevail. Family law is intensely uh, fact-driven. There are relatively few significant judgment calls in family law. Those, really? those are important ones. Uh, in a given case, for example, it is a very important to decide whether a case is a spousal support case or not. I mean, that's crucial. 
usually you don't have to make that decision. It either clearly is or it clearly isn't. Uh, if it clearly is, then it's a question of let's look at the dollars. Let's see. Let's let's see what's available. Let's see what's needed. Let's see. Uh, is there hope of rehabilitation or not? Uh, is this a short-term thing or is this permanent alimony? Those are important decisions. But out of the 25 decisions that are going to be made in Jones versus Jones, probably only one of them uh, is challenging. Really? Mm-hmm. And I've not been a judge, but it would seem to me that it would be challenging to weigh a child's best interests. Absolutely. That's one of the challenging decisions. <laughs> if, if both are going after custody. What has been the effect, if any, of the presence of more female lawyers in the family law bar? It has modified and ameliorated the behavior of the male lawyers in the courtroom. Bear in mind, I only see what happens in the courtroom. But the uh, level of politeness is enhanced when your uh, adversary is a female, and it's not through condescension. I think it's, it's a recognition that the adversary female is bringing other skills and other viewpoints to the case than you have, you the male lawyer, and you need to keep an open mind. I, I think I see an improvement in the behavior of male lawyers when they have a female adversary. Really? I think so. In your 32 years, did you observe an increase in the number of parties who were attempting to represent themselves? Yes. Why do you think that is? Lawyers are expensive. Well, that was true 32 years ago. Right. Um, the resources available to the pro se uh, litigant now are far better than they used to be. Uh, 32 years ago, or 34 years ago, when I ascended the bench, uh, the pro se litigant uh, turned to legal aid and usually could be represented by a lawyer from legal aid. Now legal aid is, is swamped, and there have arisen other resources, online resources. The explosion of the Internet have, has helped, and, of course, the Supreme Court has uh, mounted a very effective access to justice initiative that provides forms, among other things, and education to pro se litigants. So they come to court much better armed with concepts and even forms than they used to. Well, I'll agree with you that Supreme Court provides forms. I don't know that I agree that they provide education to litigants. Have you had an opportunity? I mean, have you really looked at the forms, the instructions for filling them out and They're so tough. forth? <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, you know, for example, as to alimony, there's absolutely no direction as to what is or isn't an alimony case, uh, what type is appropriate. It literally says, consult your CPA. There might be tax consequences. And this is for pro se litigants, you know, who odds are don't have their CPA on speed dial. What can the the bar or the court, what can we do to sort of fill that void, that education the, uh, or lack of education that uh, pro se litigants have? You're doing that with your blog. That's you, part of it, but that may cause more confusion, frankly, than than help. No, it doesn't. It, it, it it's it's a great it's a great help, and that may be, you know, let a thousand uh, flowers bloom. Uh, that may be far better than any top-down uh, solution that the Supreme Court is going to, if you will, foist upon people. 
What advice do you have for people who are trying to do it themselves? Let me dodge that a little bit. It's relatively easy to file a complaint. It's relatively easy to file an answer and a counterclaim. Uh, the Supreme Court forms can get you a long way there, or other online forms can. Once you've got a complaint and or answer and or counterclaim, then, I'm dodging your question now, the best thing to do is get to mediation because that will clarify the issues. Even if you haven't clarified the issues in your own mind, your mediator will clarify those issues for you, and you've got an outstanding chance of concluding the case through mediation. Now, if that doesn't work, then you're back to the swamp, for which you and I at this point have no solutions for the pro se litigant, unfortunately. Do you think it's important that that they mediate with someone who is a lawyer, who oh, yes. practices family law? Because, oh, you know, yes. you can be a Rule 31 mediator and not be an attorney. I mean, I, I have seen people who've come to me after having mediated with a non-attorney mediator, and they don't know any more about the law than they did, you know, before their whole process started. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it was a mistake for the Supreme Court to cotton up to non-lawyer mediators? I can't speak for all types of law. I think for family law in particular, it is critical to have someone who really knows the law. Because a lot of times you have people who have unrealistic expectations or they just completely misunderstand what the law is or what even a potential outcome is. Case in point, I am the woman. I will receive custody. That's the law. Or you have, I mean, I see people who come to see me who say, you know, this guy's a truck driver. He's on the road. He comes in a couple days every two weeks, and he tells me I'll never see the kids again. He's going to get custody, and I'll never see them again. And they are scared to death. Absolutely. Absolutely petrified, thinking that this guy knows anything about what he's talking about. And, uh, and that is so common. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, since uh, since retiring, I am helping a lot of people uh, pro bono who you know call upon me and say, "Hey, Bill, what do you think about this thing?" And I hear this story all the time. He tells me so and so. I mean, the controlling personality continues to be a controlling personality right. uh, even during the separation period. You know, you will never see the children again. I will shame you in court. Uh, you're trash. Your family's trash. Right. <laughs> Why did I marry you? I don't know. Right. <laughs> <But> <laughs> But that's not an uncommon thing, and, right. and I'm sure there are people who are listening to this who can completely identify with that. And, th you know, that's where um, I think you need to have a family law attorney slash mediator. I think it's important in family law cases to have someone who has a, a extensive knowledge of the law and actual practice experience yep. to know what's realistic and what's not. Yep, yep, yep. I, I describe myself as a... Uh as a strong mediator, I, and by that I mean I will not let people flounder around seeking outcomes that simply cannot be achieved in court, and I will tell them that. I say, now look, there is room to move uh, off this middle line, but out there, you know, out there on the edges of the bell curve, no judge is going to do that. I can tell you that. So to that extent, I'm a controlling mediator. Mm -hmm. And I and I am, am proud of that. And there are excellent mediators who say, "Oh goodness, no, goodness, no! You should let uh, you know the ping pong balls fly uh, up and down, and uh, uh, just uh, you know stand back and uh, smile and and be nice to everybody." And uh, it's not my style. I'll change your nomenclature. I call that an evaluative mediator. Yes, and that's the type of mediation that I do, um, where I will say, you know. 
not often, but there are times I've said there's a zero percent chance this will happen. <laughs> you know, it, and so let's understand that the, the opponent, the other side, they know this. And so the more we talk about this, we're in fantasy land mm -hmm. and it's time to get within the realm of the possible. As we talked, Judge Swan shared this advice for new lawyers. One of the most important things for a young lawyer is to recognize that the clerks of court are vital to his law practice, and he should get to know them, trust them, ask them for advice, ask them how to do something. Perfectly all right to come in and, and you know, even fake that you don't know what to do. How do, how do I do this, uh, Madam Clerk? Or what's the best way to do that? How does the judge like doing such and such? A wealth of knowledge is there. The lawyer who comes into the clerk's office on stilts and is surrounded by uh, lesser beings and treats them with contempt is going to have a miserable law practice. And we have those lawyers who come in and they're, you know, these klutzes who work here in the clerk's office don't have a law degree and they're trying to tell me something? I mean, come off of it. Those lawyers have shot themselves in both feet and one hand. So the young lawyer should seek out the clerks, seek out the judicial secretaries, ask for their advice, take their advice, thank them. They are your ad advocates. They are your accessories. They are your friends. Recognize it. Another big change during his tenure as a judge is the decline of mentoring opportunities for new lawyers. Good mentoring is critical to the development of a lawyer, especially in family law. It's just not as common today as it used to be. Uh, over the years, we had the larger firms where the young people were brought on and were taught to practice law. Now many people graduate from law school and go into solo, solo uh, practices, and I, uh, you know, I grieve for them. There's definitely a, a, a clear point where it changed, and that was with the Great Recession in 07, 08, when law firms stopped hiring. Mm -hmm. I mean, their business was contracting, and so new lawyers had no options. You know, when I came out of school, you know, it was a question of which firm am I going to go to? And uh, after, after the economic upheaval of, of, uh, of 07, 08, a lot of kids were coming out of law school and, and nobody was looking for them. And so they had to, just by default, had to go into a solo practice. And, and, and you could see a big difference in folks doing it the way they thought they needed to do it as opposed to having an experienced hand showing them how things are done. Because the truth of the matter is, when you come out of law school, you don't know anything. You're not equipped to really practice law. I think in my first couple of years, I probably learned more about the actual practice of law from my secretary, who'd been doing it for 30 plus years. Things I just, you know, in law school, you're learning the substantive law, how to read cases and how to think like a lawyer. But the actual ins and outs of it, I had no clue. And so you see a lot of young lawyers that miss out, have missed out on that. I think it's changing slightly, but there's really a, a big bubble of lawyers that uh, going through you know, the generations, a large bubble that missed out on that completely. And, and I think it has affected the practice of family law in particular mm -hmm. adversely because of the, most solo practitioners, they're going to start to dabble. They're going to dabble in a little bit of everything, but that tends to lead them into family law. And you see some really bad lawyering from young lawyers and misbehavior uncivil behavior, things where you think that they perhaps could have benefited from learning from somebody. And I didn't mm -hmm. know if you observed that. I buy into those comments completely. I agree with you. How do you fix it? 
I mean, is it just a, a strictly an economic thing? When the economy is good, law firms hire, and those opportunities are there. And when the economy is is in recession, those opportunities disappear. Yeah, it's the ebb and flow of commerce. We can't do anything about that. As to the bubble of lawyers that did not have um, mentoring in their early years, they're they're going to work their way through, and their rough edges are going to get worn off. And some of them will leave the practice of law from sheer disappointment. Mm-hmm because they've been rebuffed so often and they're not making a living. That's sad. That's sad. As you mentioned earlier, you presided over roughly 4,000 cases a year, many of which went to trial in over 32 years. That's a whole lot of trials. So you've had the opportunity to observe lawyers advocating in family law cases uh, time and time again. You've seen very good advocacy and uh, I assume you've seen very bad advocacy. So I'd like you to share your thoughts on how family law attorneys can be better in-court advocates just based on your observations and your experience. Never insult your adversary. Never insult an opposing witness. Always treat them uh, with kindness and deference and politeness. You will win more cases that way than by being aggressive and confrontative, that'd be one thing. The other is prepare, 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 which is easily said, and we all know that. But the more preparation that you spend with a case, the better you will be when you come to court, if you come to court, and in fact, the more likely you will have been to have settled it before you come to court. Oftentimes, your adversary is the problem. Your adversary lawyer is a kind of person who needs to strut and preen and with whom you cannot work out anything, and so you must litigate the case. Still, treat that person with respect in the courtroom and outside the courtroom. That's difficult to do, but that would be my strongest advice. It is better to do that. It is better ethically. It is better as a moral person. It is difficult to do, but it is by far the preferable road. That goes back to your earlier thoughts about civility and has it changed. Yes, it has changed to some to some extent, but we can strike a blow for civility if we are, in each case in which we deal with difficult adversary, still polite, still careful to observe the rules of procedure rather than cutting corners. When I uh, was still in the practice of law uh, from 1975 to 1982, uh, there was a phrase which I still cherish, about how the Knoxville Bar was better than elsewhere. And we had so far resisted the New Jerseyfication of the practice of law, which largely consisted, the New Jerseyfication, of course, consisted of uh, being brash, being, being rude, but noticing your adversary counsel to everything, rather than trying to work out an agreement to go to court on such and such a day. Right. That's rare. It does happen. There are, I can probably count on one hand, the number of lawyers in town who practice that way. And in a way, you know, I feel sorry for them because everything is much more difficult because lawyers, once that's happened before, once they treat you that way, you don't... Re- you, you don't you, trust you, them. Right. Yeah. You don't give them any breaks. You reciprocate, and it just makes everything... Uh, much more costly for the client, number one, and just more difficult for both lawyers. And, you know, our, our job's hard enough as it is. We don't it need is. to make the it. The practice of law is uh, a, a life of continual anxiety, continual stress. It is difficult, difficult, difficult. 
when someone comes to me and says, I'm thinking of going to law school, I say, number one, you've got, <laughs> you've got a, a range of options. You will never limit yourself by going into the practice of law. But I can say, are you ready also for a life of continual anxiety? Because that's what you'll have. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. That's tough. When you see lawyers, like you described as preening in court, can we agree that that is just a completely ineffective way of advocating? We can the... agree, yes. We certainly can. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it doesn't push, the again, the audience of one in your direction. If anything, it pushes the audience of one away from your argument, makes them less receptive to what you're trying to sell. Kelly, I would suspect that that's also true for a jury. Yeah. You know, the... We, we do have class issues uh, in the courtroom, and uh, jurors who look at a, a lawyer who's behaving in an entitled way, a lawyer already suffers by being from a different class, if you will, a more privileged class than the average juror. And then to see that lawyer strutting really hurts his case. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode, but don't worry, I'll be back next week with the rest of my interview with Judge Swan. The next episode focuses on the changes he's observed in Tennessee family law since he became a judge back in 1982, and there have been some major changes since then. I also get him to look ahead to predict the changes he thinks we'll see over the next 30 years. Definitely check that out next week. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends on social media or however you share things with your friends. I'm K.O. Hurston, and as always, thanks for listening.